Hello and welcome to Dyslexia Explored. I am Darius Nomderon, your host, and today our guest is a lady who started her career with a heart for social justice and looking for a cause, she ended up falling into a dyslexia association in Ireland and has is now the CEO after 20 years of the Dyslexia Association of Ireland. It's the same initials as the, uh, you know, it's the D-A-I. And is also the chair of the European Dyslexia Association. I'd like to introduce you to Rosie Bissett. It's great to have you here, Rosie. Uh, hi, Darius. Thank you. It's lovely, lovely to join you for a chat today. So in Dyslexia Explored, we love to hear people's stories, you know, the backstory, as it were, the story arc of their dyslexia story. Now, you're not dyslexic and you don't have a child with dyslexia. And so you're one of these unusual people, because often with the dyslexia word, I was just interviewing Dr. Burnett Ede from the Dyslexic Advantage book. Do you know it? Yes, yes. So, and, and how did she get into it? Her son? you know, and uh, how do so many other Senkos and so on start getting passionate about this because they've got a child in the house and they realize what it's like. But for you, it was a little bit different. So tell us where it all began. What was life like before dyslexia came on your horizon? Right, so yeah, so for me, dyslexia was definitely, if I was doing my, uh, where do you see yourself in 10 years time when I was at the uh, end of my uh, second secondary school or even starting in college, it certainly wasn't uh, working in a dyslexia association. So I really very much fell into dyslexia. I was looking for a job. I had been, I'd been doing uh, medicine actually, and I was part of the way through a medical degree and then decided really it wasn't wasn't quite a, the right fit for me so I was in between deciding where my passion where my fit was in life I was looking for a job but one of the things I knew was that for me it was it was as you said it was very much about the cause it was very much about and I think I'm very driven by justice um, and social justice so I was never someone who was going to be applying for a job in a uh, venture capital company or making profit for someone else it was always going to be about something a cause that was about helping people and um, helping people in need, helping people to achieve their potential um, and that kind of balance. So in looking for a job, I happened to apply for a job that came up in the Dyslexia Association, although funnily enough, it wasn't called the Dyslexia Association at the time. Um, and I ended up in uh, uh, working as an information officer. Um, and I suppose that was 20 years ago. I was very young, obviously, when I started. I think I've learned so much both through research, through attending conferences and events, through, uh, I suppose, at an academic level. But I think I've also learned so much from the people that I've come in contact with, be they the parents, the professionals, but most importantly, the adults and the kids who have dyslexia themselves and learning about their stories and the impact that dyslexia had for them in their lives. And I suppose that's a huge that's a huge driver ultimately for me at the end of the day, as I say, it's about knowing what I what I've done on a given day or what I helped others to be able to do has has helped in some small way to make things better for people with dyslexia, either individually or on a, on a, on a larger advocacy level. I'm just thinking about the listeners often 
we're speaking in this podcast to to parents who are wondering, you know, can this story help me with dyslexia? And I'm just thinking that I imagine there's many parents who are listening that have a child with dyslexia, but they're also moved to do something about it in an organization of some sort. They might be the running a Facebook group that is starting to become something a bit more formalized. They might be running a decoding group in, in America or an, an association, or they might be an information officer like you who's like, oh, I don't have dyslexia, but I, I really want to help and so on. So I think it would be fascinating for them and to speak to them in, the, in this podcast. So what I like to hear is what's the wake up call for you? Like I, I often think in a journey like this, you don't just drift. Sometimes it starts with a drift and then something happens that is a, a defining moment and wakes you up. And it sounds like dyslexia chose you. So how did dyslexia choose you? I think because my first introduction to the world of dyslexia, as I say, I was always open to the, to, to the good cause. But I think my first role in dyslexia was I was the person at the end of the phone speaking to those parents. So I was speaking to parents all day, every day, who were really concerned, worried about their child, wanting to know how, you, how to get their child assessed, uh, or if their child had just been assessed and they were totally, it's like, what do I do now? What, where do I go? What's going, to, what's going to become of my child? You know, what's, what help do I need? What, what literally just desperate for information and advice and support. Um, and also then parents who were maybe having, coming up against real barriers and um, struggling hugely with getting schools to recognize their child's needs, getting the right supports put in place, getting the accommodations that they needed be it for exams or other things like that. Um, and also, I think one of the things that's huge, been hugely powerful in my journey with dyslexia, more than anything else, has actually probably been talking to adults with dyslexia because I think that's such a you par very powerfully see the impact of dyslexia if you were talking to an adult who was never diagnosed when they were in school and you really see beyond literacy and I think that's one of the challenges sometimes you know at the school age or even dealing with professionals be it teachers or psychologists who are just used to working with school-aged children sometimes the focus is so much just on literacy that we don't see all the much wider kind of impact and that kind of trickle that look we know dyslexia is a lifelong condition and it's not just about literacy it can impact memory it can you know it, it can impact lots of other aspects of of our life in terms of how we learn how we process information how we can deal with when we're under time pressure uh, and things like that. And I think getting, I suppose, embedded in the, the stories, be it with adults with dyslexia, you know, coming to us for support or my colleagues will say who have dyslexia, you really get that huge sense of injustice, I think, for them. There are so many adults, and I know it's not just, it's not just in Ireland, it's around the world. There are so many adults of varying ages who never got the chance to have their dyslexia identified in school, who were given such negative messaging around their ability, that their ability was so linked with how well they could read or write or spell. 
um, who have had such, I think, long-term mental impact of that, you know, on their confidence, on their self-esteem in terms of, you know, depression, having, having such poor self-esteem, some of them themselves, that they don't even realize how much potential and how much ability they have, you know? So I think it's, I think when you see that impact for adults, I think it really, really champions, I suppose, and spurs you on to make sure that, I suppose, that that doesn't happen to others, but that also we can look and see what we can do to help, you know, that cohort of adults who, unfortunately, when they were coming through school, dyslexia wasn't as well known and it wasn't picked up as readily. So I think that's a huge, that's a huge driver for me. Um, but I also think as well with adults, there's so many amazing stories of adults who, despite those challenges, found such creative ways to succeed, you know, and found such creative ways to work around their challenges. And I think that's also hugely powerful when you're talking with parents now, or even with talking with students and young people with dyslexia is going, you know what? Yes, it's tough now. Yes, you know, when you're struggling with learning how to read accurately, how to spell accurately, dealing with written tests in school, but it's saying, you know what, we can look beyond that and, you know, and look at where are your strengths? What are you good at? How can we really build and develop those? You know, what strategies can we give you so that we can really unleash that potential that is in each human being? Fascinating. And I, I think uh, I, I've experienced a similar, you know, like someone, I run an online uh, tutoring company where we've got tutors all around uh, tutors that tutor kids all around the world uh, in study skills for dyslexia and often an adult phone me up and there'll be an executive and they'll be saying do you know what I've been listening to your podcast or I've been watching your videos and you know I'm dyslexic I, I know I'm dyslexic now I know I'm dyslexic and they start telling me the story and then it's really tough sometimes, you know, uh, to hear sometimes, you know, stories of lost decades of work prospects, of promotion prospects, mm -hmm. of, you know, progressing, not just for the sake of them making more money, which they would, but for the sake of them finding more meaningful work, having a more meaningful contribution. And often it's some of those very simple you know, they're, they're blocked at a gate because they can't do that test very well. They can't do the organize this. They can't explain their ideas sometimes very well, but they've got great ideas. Their ideas are a bit jumbled up, but they're great ideas. They can show you how to do it, but they can't necessarily tell you how to do it and all of that. And that creates these small stumbling blocks that trip them up. And then you pick up the phone and it's another parent with a nine-year-old and they're like they're really good at mechanics and they're really good at this and you're like oh my goodness i can see where this story could go in mm -hmm. 30 years if and when you when you, it is powerful and and what makes what what's it's a privilege because 
you don't often get that when dyslexia is in your world. You're either in the teenage world of, oh my goodness, just disorganization all over the place, or you're in the 21 something world where it's like, yeah, I really want to do this and I'm not quite sure where I'll go. There's so many possibilities and you, you get analysis paralysis and you get lost and you drift and so on. Or you're the eight year old where I can't read and all the rest of it. And so you're just immersed in that one moment of dyslexia as it were that that stage of it but you don't get that juxtaposition exactly and that's that's so true and i think that's such a valuable lesson that we always try and build in whether it's working you know when we're doing you know sessions with parents or sessions with teachers it's trying to get people to see past that as you said that immediate moment because it's so easy you know, as I say, I've talked to so many parents over the years, you know, my child has just been diagnosed. What do I do now? How do I help? How do I how do I improve their literacy? How do I enable them to get through school? And actually, it's yes. OK, sometimes my best advice is, you know what, stop and take a breath. OK, yes, it's important to work on those challenges, but it's also important to try and get people to kind of look at that bigger picture, you know. And as much as I think it's a natural human tendency as a parent, I know and as a parent, if there's if your child has a challenge, your natural instinct is, oh, my God, I need to work on that. And what can I do to help them? But I suppose we have to be very careful that we don't if you put all your focus on the on what the problem is, we need yeah. to be very careful about that messaging that we're giving to a child or to others. Yeah. That, you know, we don't just problematize everything, but yeah. actually go, you know what? Yes, you have dyslexia. Yes, it means that unfortunately, you know, reading and spelling is, is tougher for you than for, you know, uh, you know, your friend Sophie. But it doesn't mean that you won't be able to do those things. We're going to put strategies in place. We're going to get support. We're going to we're going to help and it will come in time. We're not going to get too stressed about it. But we also need to look at and remember the stuff that you're really good at and look at how we can develop those. And I think if you look at that kind of arc of success and people with dyslexia who do really well, it's because they've been able to really capitalize and focus and develop those, those skills, those passions, those strengths that they have. So whether that's, you know, whether that's the person with dyslexia who ends up becoming a saving instructor, you know what I mean? So that's why I think it's so important as parents to go, you know what? Don't drop the other extracurricular activities, which sometimes it's, you know, we go, oh, we really need to work on their reading and spelling and their learning, you know, but actually it's so important in the long run that they have those other things, whether it's art, whether it's a coding club, whether it's, you know, playing Lego and they end up becoming an engineer or an architect, all of it, it's, it's that, I suppose, trying to have that holistic view of it, you know, and I think that's tough. And I think parents and teachers also as well, and other professionals sometimes need to be, I suppose, to try and show them that holistic, you know, that lifelong arc that people can have so that we don't just focus on the problem of dyslexia, but also look at, okay, how we can turn that around and also to to balance that with the strengths and the challenges of an individual as well. So I'm really appreciating the way you're articulating it because often I, I know I'm dyslexic and, you know, it is hard to be viewed as a problem as a child, you know, mm -hmm. oh, that's 
child, you know, with the nicest loving intent, bit of a problem, you know, bit of a problem, bit of a problem, bit of a disappointment, bit of a problem. And, and constantly like that. And even, and sometimes it wasn't nicely done, but you know, that's powerful that you're not just a problem. Mm-hmm. You're, we're not just looking at your problems. We're looking at your abilities. It's like giving praise, isn't it? And, and, and negative feedback. You know, in business, we say, you know, give a cup, three words of praise for every word of um, correction. And yet with dyslexia, correction, correction, correction. I mean, we've just come out of Go Red week go red for dyslexia, where they're trying to reclaim the color red from the teachers who scribbled all these yeah. red markings, you know, and then they write, you know, spelling this, spelling that, mark that. And the, and the child is saying, did you like the story? And there's like nothing about the story. You know, I poured my heart into that story and there's nothing about the story and that sort of thing. Why am I, I just went off on one there. Uh, why did I just go? Yes, really helpful to, to 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 bring that balance. So, what would you say? We've looked at the, what life was like before. What was your wake up call? These phone calls and so on. Mm-hmm. Now you're the CEO of the uh, Dyslexia Association for Ireland and chair of the European Dyslexia Association. What would you say are the challenges that you've faced in mm-hmm. this journey? The big challenges. Oh, the big challenges. Um, well, I think we still, number one, we still have a big issue with people who don't, who don't fully get what dyslexia is, who still focus it, who still focus and think of it as, you know, the problem is in the child and the problem is with literacy, who don't see that bigger, you know, as I say, that trickle effect into other aspects of, of how we learn and also how we work. So I think that's absolutely a challenge. I think one of the other things that I think comes up a lot as well is we still compartmentalize things a lot. So we put things in boxes. So oftentimes a child or an adult, let's say, has their diagnosis of dyslexia and they get put in this box of (laughs) dyslexia. But dyslexia, we know, is a very varied, you know, condition. So, you know, we often say you can have 100 people with dyslexia in a room they're all going to be very different. They're all going to have a different profile of maybe strengths and, and, and challenges. They're also all going to have different strategies that work for them, different solutions that, that work, different technology maybe that helps them. Some might love mind mapping and things like that, and, and others don't. Some might love a more audio approach and others don't. Some might prefer pen and paper to computer and text. So I think that the complexity and the variation within the field of dyslexia is is a hard one to get across because I think sometimes maybe particularly with teachers and educational professionals it's like you know oh oh yes I had one dyslexic last year and I did this with them and that seemed to work you can't assume that that's going to work for the next child you have who has dyslexia so it's that I think wider understanding now i think we're at a stage where we need to get into a better more i suppose uh, a fuller more holistic understanding and we also need to look at in in relation to that as well we also need to watch out for co-occurrence because i suppose that's a really important issue as well because i think sometimes the first diagnosis that someone may get defines them and you're you know you're darius the dyslexic or you're you know uh, sophie who has dyspraxia 
But actually, one of the things that we know um, and, uh, is that actually there's a lot of co-occurrence and overlap in this kind of neurodiversity spectrum that, that we now talk about. So whether it's dyslexia, dyspraxia, attention difficulties, even Asperger's syndrome, sort of the high functioning end of the autistic spectrum, um, there is overlap. And while someone may have a primary, let's say their primary profile, there's often little features of the others and they can sometimes get overlooked as well. And then I think that also contributes to the, the mental health impact that it can have. And I think that's something that I think really, for me, as I said earlier, comes through hugely from adults, but you also see it with children as well. I think it's there's a much growing awareness of if we don't get this right in terms of early identification, in terms of the right kind of interventions, you know, in a timely manner, we can see the mental health toll that this can take. So it's so important, not just educationally, but for mental health, for people's ability to be able to progress and to fulfill their potential. It's so important that we get that right. Yes. I did an interview with Stan Gloss, an entrepreneur who was very impacted by Brenny Brown's work mm-hmm. around shame. Mm-hmm. I imagine, are you into Brenny Brown's yes, work? Yes, I am. Yes, yeah, she's great. <laughs> so, We've got a common language there then. So he he was talking about shame and how when he tracked back, he realized it created a great dyslexia. His experience with dyslexia, not the dyslexia, but his experience with dyslexia in school brought a lot of shame into his life. And still, you know, older guy, you know, like me, (laughs) living with that shame. Mm -hmm. And what I've noticed is with a lot of the students in the... our, our school, our club, there's a lot of confusion around dyslexia. And there's confusion with the teachers and the professionals. There's confusion amongst in the parents' minds. But there's also confusion in the child. And I see this confusion in the classroom. So even on the most simple level, you know, confusion when it comes to understanding the words or in comprehension tests or what's expected of me when I've got to answer this long question. I'm confused by the question because I see so many possibilities that other people aren't addressing here. What's the right answer here? And what tends to happen, I think, is this a quiet confusion. And when, you ha- when you're confused, you lose. You lose time and you fall behind. Mm-hmm. It's like playing a game. If you're confused about the rules, you're kind of like, oh, I'm playing, but I'm not quite sure. And then you're not winning or, or, you know, you're not getting into it. And so you lose time. um, And so you fall back. You you lose face. So you get embarrassed. You lose confidence. And so you get anxious. And I think once that happens quite a lot, it then turns to shame. And then once you've got the shame, you then start shutting off. And once you start shutting off, then that depression, the the mental health, the frustration, all all that starts to compound within this uh, echo chamber, this closed system where you just do not want to share anything. And I think a lot of it comes from this quiet confusion. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think it creates that confusion creates a huge amount of self-doubt. And I think you see it, you see it actually in, in assessing children, even talking to kids who have dyslexia. Sometimes they do actually 
they know the right answer. They could spell that word perfectly, but there is that internal confusion and doubt that makes them overthink, you know, and not trust themselves because of that, that doubt and that fear and that confusion that's built up. It's such a permanent way of being that sometimes they almost, they talk themselves out of the correct answer or they're afraid to give it for fear of being wrong, you know? So confusion turns into self-doubt, mm -hmm. which is, it's not necessarily confusion. It, you, you might be clear, but you start doubting yourself because, exactly. oh, I get confused about these things. And, and yeah. oh, wow, another. And I think as well, you also then have that, you know, the way sometimes in school, there's like, there's the right way or the wrong way to do something. And the right yes. way is the way the teacher does it. But maybe as a dyslexic or someone who is a bit more neurodiverse, you've come about that from a different way and that doesn't yeah. mean that that way is that is a perfectly valid way and you've maybe got to the right answer yeah that's not the way that they wanted you to do yeah, that's right we, are. we can be stifling this diverse thinking by going no you must and i always think of it in maths particularly because it's like no you have to do it this way and you must show your workings and you have to use this way of solving the problem whereas someone else may have they may have done it in their head like that, or they may have used a different strategy, but still got to the right answer. But teacher who is not maybe very neurodiverse and inclusive will go, that's wrong, okay? Yeah. Or I don't trust how you got that answer because you yeah. didn't use this set way of doing it. So I suppose it's that wider acceptance of diversity and actually going you know there often isn't a right way and a wrong way there's a way that you like to do it there's a way that i like to do it but you know and maybe sometimes there's what's really good i suppose you know if you talk about things like metacognition actually what's really good is looking at analyzing how we do it is really important and we can learn a lot by talking through oh how did you get that yeah. work that out and how did you work that out and we can yeah. learn a lot about our how how we think and how we problem solve and obviously look these are the skills that yeah. as everyone says the kind of the future skills that we need yeah. is that diverse diverse thinking you know is what we should be valuing not fitting people into boxes yes so we are masters at getting the right answer the wrong way yeah it's not the wrong way. You just you've just been told it's the wrong way. This that's is right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you got the right answer, Darius, but that's the wrong way. Yeah, exactly. It worked. It's got to be the right way. <laughs> it's got to be our right way. Yeah. Um, I, 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 uh, my, my family were shaking their head at me the other yesterday because I can't remember numbers. Okay, just terrible at remembering numbers, mm -hmm. and so the only way I can remember a number like 14, one, four, seven, five, okay? 1475. The only way I can do it is converting the numbers into letters. So I turn the one into a D, the four into an R, and I join D and R together and make door. And then 74 becomes a KR, car. So I think, right, the, the battle of such and such of, uh, Ochtemarken is done on the door of a car, you know? And then someone says to me, when was that battle? And I'm like, right, yeah, there was a door in a car. So D is one, the R, uh, 14, and then a car, 70, 
1474. And they show, are you sure? Yeah, it's a door in a car. Definitely sure, 1474. <laughs> and they're like, oh, yeah, that's right, you know. But I have to go through this convoluted process of coding it up into something I understand, visualizing it, then coming back down and decoding it so I can get the right answer. And someone looks at me and goes, what? Why can't you just remember 1474? What's the big deal? Just say it five or six times and you've got it. And I'm like, no. No, 150 true. times, I still won't have it. Yeah. That's a great strategy. And I think this is what's fascinating is actually if we're, if we're open to this diversity and how we do things, I think so many people, you can learn from how other people do this. I, as I say, as I said to you before, I'm not dyslexic, but actually dates is what, and I, I used to really love history in school, but dates, I just, dates just do not stick in my head. Yeah, you know? and and like that, I think I've never really worked on it. So now I'm going to have to start, uh, you know, trying out some of this strategy of yours, yeah, yeah to help me it, remember them. It's called the major memory system. Mm -hmm. It's an internationally. It's been used for about two thousand years. Mm -hmm. No, I think maybe about four thousand years since Plato and Aristotle. Okay. So they take all the the numbers one to zero. So one becomes de, two becomes ne. Three becomes ma, four becomes ra, five becomes la, etc. And once you've got all of those, you can turn any number into a word. You can make something silly and funny out of, join them together, and you can remember. That's how all these memory champions remember, like, you know, 100-digit numbers and decks of cards and things like that. I don't do that. But if I need to remember a pin number or something like that, then that's what I do. Very good. This podcast is sponsored by dyslexiaproductivitycoaching.com, which helps you organize yourself creatively with a productivity system for Apple devices. So the challenge, tell us a little bit about what you actually do. Tell us about the association what, and the European association. Start with the Irish one. What, what do you guys do there? Well, I suppose we're, we're the national charity. Uh, in the area of dyslexia. We're a membership-based organization, so we have families right across the country who would be uh, part of our association. Um, we also do a lot of, I suppose, general work with, with the public as well. So everything from the information, obviously where I cut my teeth in dyslexia, the information, helpline, you know, phone, uh, email, social media messaging, all of that, uh, helping people uh, who have questions about dyslexia and guiding them. We have an assessment service uh, which we run from our national office in Dublin, although at the moment, obviously, in COVID times, it's it's remote. So we've doing, been doing remote assessment for the last number of months, which has been really interesting, but has worked worked really well uh, in the main. Um, well, can I pause you on that, please? Remote assessment. I was just thinking that yesterday. I was Googling up, does anyone do remote dyslexia assessments? Mm -hmm. I couldn't get much info on it, to be quite honest. It was quite confusing. But you're doing dysle remote dyslexia assessments. Tell us more. So we have a team of educational psychologists, okay? So and as I say, pre-COVID, people came to us and they sat in a little office and, and did the did their, their testing for dyslexia. And I suppose, obviously, like with everyone, when COVID hit, it was like everything stopped. And then we were like, hang on, everything can't stop. There is people have a need. We have to find a way to meet that need because, like, look, COVID is going to be with us for a while. So we can't just stop assessing people for for dyslexia and the reality is that the vast majority of the tests that you do you can 
you can do them online. You know, you might occasionally need a parent's assistance. So let's say, for example, with a spelling test, um, our assessments are all done by our educational psychologist. So the psychologist will be maybe calling out the word and asking the child to write it down. And then you just get the parent. The parent will take a picture and, and send that on or hold it pull the sheet up to the screen and we can take a screenshot of it and then the psychologist can score it. So it can be a little bit more time consuming, some of it, just in terms of the technicalities of how it works. So but how long does it normally take? Is it like three hours? Um, it doesn't quite take three hours, no. So like the testing bit of it might be anything from an hour, an hour to two hours, depending on how many tests you needed to do. I suppose, and again, one of the things with dyslexia is there isn't necessarily a set exact every you do exactly every the same test and subtest with every individual you start out with certain common ones and then depending on maybe what the what the presenting issues are what the concerns are from the adult or that the parent has you know you might be going okay we need to do a little look in this area a bit more depth or whatever so anything from an hour to two and obviously if you need it you can take a break as well and then, you know, I suppose things like the, the pre-assessment interview and the post-assessment feedback, those things can be done either online or over the phone, et cetera, as well. So um, it's doable, you know, absolutely. You know, How much time is it adding, would you say, compared to in-person? So a couple of hours in-person compared to, what, three hours online? Maybe a little, a little bit more. Um, but I suppose the flip side of it is then from a, let's say, the parent or the adult's point of view, you don't have to travel. So let's say yes. in our case, we, we only have one permanent premises in the country in our national office here in Dublin. So we would have potentially have people who are, you know, traveling from the other side of the country, you know, where it's taking them hours to get here. They're possibly having to stay overnight and then they're, you know, hours back the next day. So there is that saving, you know, as well. There's, I suppose, the comfort for the there can be both the comfort factor of doing an assessment in your own home yes. um, and then also now having said that for some people doing it at home is not an option you maybe don't have good broadband obviously you need good broadband yeah. to be able to do it or maybe you don't have a obviously the one thing that's really important for assessment is you have a quiet space where you're not going to be disturbed where you're going to be able to hear the instructions yeah. that are given to you you're going to be able to uh, and where the psychologist then can hear, you know, when you're reading, they need to be able to hear well what, how, how you're reading that, or if they're doing tests on your phonological processing, they need to be able to, you need to be able to hear the, the test stimulus that they're giving you, and then the psychologist needs to be able to hear that response clearly. But look, in the main, it, you know, you can make it work very well, you know, and I suppose, look, we, we're currently getting our, our, our offices set up so that as and when it's safe to do so, we can begin to do some in-person assessments, but obviously with all the usual kinds of you know, precautions in terms of PPE and screens and everything else like that. We've been talking about this and I imagine that remote assessment isn't, I don't see it going away overnight. I think it, it potentially could be that it's something that we, in the future, we're doing a bit of both, you know, some remote assessments, yeah. some in-person. Yeah. Um, because I suppose that COVID is with us for a while, but also we've all gotten so much more accustomed and used to doing things online now as well. So yeah. I think we've broken a lot of those barriers and fears about yeah. about working online or learning yeah. online or even assessing online. Yeah. So yeah, I think these things will become more more normal. You know. Well, I remember you know a year ago, at uh, Bolton Map Academy, we've done everything online for the last four years. So. Oh. 
we do all the online tutoring. Our tutors on one side of the world, our students are in America, Singapore, Australia, wherever. They dial in. We used to kind of have to explain to people, right, there's this thing called Zoom, and it's kind of like Skype, but more than two people can meet on it and talk, and you can share your screen, and you can put on another device and show what you're doing, and they're like, oh, okay, you know, you know, and it would take an hour, an hour of one-to-one just to onboard a parent who's stressed out about the new tech and the kid going, I don't know about this. This is maybe something I'll get wrong again and so on. But now we go, hey, we'll meet you on Zoom. Yeah, no problem. What's the ID? (laughs) And you're like, wow. And it's just this huge acceleration Mm -hmm. of what was going to happen over five years has happened over six months and it's fascinating to see that happening in this particular area of dyslexia assessment Mm -hmm. yeah so no and i think it's 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 very positive you know and i think look our assessment service has always been a big part of what we do um and i think it it always will be you know i suppose one of the kind of innovations that we did as well in the last year or two around assessment is we developed a new kind of I suppose, more affordable model of adult assessment, you know, where it's kind of pairing back the testing to the absolute essentials. That's one of the challenges we have here in Ireland. And I know it is something that's married in other countries. There is no public assessment route for an adult with query dyslexia. So in other words, getting an assessment as an adult, and particularly, obviously, we talked earlier about, you know, those people who potentially had huge lifelong consequences, you know, and never had the opportunity to have their dyslexia identified first time round. There were huge barriers for them to even find a psychologist who knew enough, who knew how to assess adult dyslexia, you know, properly, um, and then the cost of it as well. So I suppose that's been a really positive thing that we've done is, I suppose, pair that back to do just the essentials, make it as a affordable as possible and then also offer even reduced rates for people who are unemployed or on low income you know could you tell us a bit more about that so could you give us a little bit of context here for our international listeners Mm -hmm. american australian and what first of all how many educational psychologists doing dyslexia assessments do you think there are in ireland right now you know roughly oh gosh that's actually quite a hard one to answer there's probably i don't know Certainly less than 500 anyway, you know, okay. not, not a lot. Okay. And the population of Ireland? The population of where we're, we're uh, I think about four and three quarter million, something like that at this stage, heading for, heading for five million. Okay, so uh, let's say 400 assessors for four million people. Yeah. yeah okay, so that's... And of those... But 10,000 people. Yeah, but of those, a huge, a, a, a large amount of them would only assess children. So okay. So you're looking at then how many psychologists actually would be equipped and are even offering adult assessment that gets much smaller again. That seems like quite a lot, actually, 400. I'm surprised that there's 400. Mm. Because I, I think in Scotland, I don't, I mean... I suppose... What I, I mean, we're at 7 million people, yeah. and I, I couldn't think of, I couldn't imagine more than 100. Yeah, well, we have like what a heading for 200 in our school, the public school psychological service. But I suppose what's I'm talking about educational psychologists, okay? So, and I suppose what's important to recognize is that 
dyslexia is only one of the things that these people would be assessing for. So it's not like these people are all day, every day doing dyslexia assessment. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, and I'm probably overestimate, overestimating it at 400 because I've never even, never even thought about that. Uh, as I say, thought about that question before you asked me, Darius. But um, it's... So so we've got the population, we've got the psychologist, and how much does it normally cost for a dyslexia assessment in Ireland at the moment? Um, it would be anything, let's, so let's say if you're going for a private assessment, anything from kind of 550 to like 800 euros and sometimes even more, okay? So it's not, it's not cheap. Yeah, and so that into dollars is roughly the equivalent to dollars, euros to dollars aren't that much. Different, yeah. yeah. And then, so the, these adult assessments, you've got them down to so how much do they cost and how long do they take? To 300 euros if someone is, is working, and if they're not working, it's like 150. Okay, okay, so obviously considerably less. And we do them in about an hour and a half. Okay. Okay. And what what are they are they losing out on anything? You know, you're trimming back. What what are they getting compared to the the bigger assessment? So you're you're trimming back and doing doing less, but they're still getting they're still getting an assessment done by an educational psychologist, which you know a professional report which will evidence their dyslexia recommendations, whether it's relevant for if they're in higher education or in their workplace or anything like that like we don't do we don't do an iq test battery as standard we don't but we don't do that for either adults or children because it's not necessary to do it for testing for dyslexia so it's really more i suppose it's about rather than doing whole batteries uh we talk about assessment batteries the assessment tools that are done rather than necessarily doing every test from a to z in that test kit it's going okay what are the critical ones that will really tell us if this person has dyslexia or not, you know, and it's looking at word reading, it's looking at spelling, it's a, a comprehension test, it's doing a little test of writing, um, it's maybe looking at the underlying areas, so things like working memory, phonological processing, which we know is the core difficulty for most people with dyslexia. So it's just pairing it back to the essentials, but most importantly, in a way, I think with adults, we found that a huge part of adult assessment is, is actually listening to an adult. It's, you know, it's listening to their journey. It's hearing about their experiences and what happened for them at different stages, you know, in school, in the various stages in their education and work. It's their, oftentimes they know themselves, you know, they've come to us, they've done They've done an online test, they've done a screener, they've done like your uh, dyslexia quiz app, we'll say, you know, so they've done a lot of reading about it. They've maybe even done some screening tests. So more than anything, it's that at the stage that they come to us for an assessment, it's almost just that final check. It's that final validation. It's a confirmation. Have, it's like, it's I'm not just making this up. This is not just me being stupid. Exactly. Yeah. It is that, that, absolutely it. It's that literally tears of joy almost that I wasn't just lazy. I wasn't, yeah. or whatever horrible term was yeah. in school. You know, it's, this is the reason, you know, and that's really powerful for people. And I suppose also, look, oftentimes people come for an assessment because they need that report from the psychologist to 
to yeah. access accommodations or to support through work or whatever it is, you know. I mean, obviously, there's lots of people who have dyslexia who've never been assessed and who maybe have are at the stage where they they're like, you know what, I don't even need to go and get a formal diagnosis. You know, I'm confident in myself and my profile. I don't, you know, and maybe they don't need to, and that's totally fine too. I think going for an assessment should be a choice you shouldn't feel you're forced to do it you know but I suppose sometimes oftentimes it is that formal just third party independent verification combined with then that report that you may need to open doors for supports. That's fantastic I, I do feel a bit sad that you don't do the IQ test as well mm -hmm. because from from my experience and my child's experience and other people who have had the IQ component is when you've had a lifetime of being told that you're stupid, it is quite helpful to know exactly what your IQ is, yeah. whether it's high, medium, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and it's often higher than you look on paper, you know, like oh, you, yeah. with dyslexia, you, you never look as smart as you are on paper. That's mm -hmm. the bottom line, you know. You're when I, when I, when I, I suppose when I say we don't do the IQ as standard, but we can do it if someone wants it. Okay. Or if we do IQ, we will tend to not do a big IQ test battery, but do a shorter version. So there's like abbreviated ones that you can do. Okay. But I think one thing you need to be very careful with IQ, and particularly, particularly sometimes for for well for all ages, is that IQ can be very impacted by your literacy levels. Okay. Yes. So if you have huge difficulties with reading, if you have difficulties with memory, okay, mm -hmm. that, that slows you down in recalling. Uh, facts. If you have read less, therefore your vocabulary tends to be less. So literacy difficulties tend to negatively impact on IQ scores. Okay, so I think you need to be kind of. Aren't there some IQ tests that can overcome that sort of? There are some of the subtests where there isn't a literacy impact, but okay. let's be on all the full, the full IQ batteries. Okay. Where some of the tests. Literally has an impact on some of them, you know. Okay. You can pull out subtests which are totally so. Let's say, for example, um, all those puzzles. So and the puzzles, yeah. So you know, like the block design one. If yeah. you've ever done yeah. that, you know. I did that in my test. Yeah. Like that, you know, I love. I have to. Admit, I love that test. Myself. I love it. I love <laughs> yeah, it. I love. I, as I say, I'm quite. I'm quite visual, and I like problem solving and those things. So yeah, those kind of those ones, the non-verbal ones, yes. But in the verbal, which is like half half the subtests in the test, all a lot of the verbal subtests, there's an there is an element of language. There's an element of, you know, you're exposed the amount of vocabulary you're exposed to is often very much linked to how many books you've been able to read. Yeah. Okay. Um, or there's an impact on, you know, your your verbal memory. So for example, you know, like the test where you probably wouldn't like it, Darius, the one where you're asked to remember the sequences of numbers forwards and backwards. I'm sure that's your idea of hell. <laughs> but that that test is, you know, uh, yeah, yes, obviously would be impacted. So I think with IQ, you have to be very careful in terms of understanding how where your dyslexia is going to naturally impact yeah. on it, you know, okay. and not get too because sometimes dyslexia can bring down an overall IQ score to the yeah. point that that IQ score isn't actually a fair representation of someone's ability. You know? Fascinating, fascinating. Now, I, I, I bet you the listeners are thinking, get back on track, Darius. You were talking about online dyslexia assessments, talking about the context. And 
So you, you've done that context and that's fascinating. And where do you think that's going to go? Because do you think, because you might get calls from Scotland and England and saying, oh, I hear you do online dyslexia assessments. Can you do one for me? And, you know, you could then do it anywhere in the world. Yeah, I suppose, look, there is a potential for that. But at the same time, I don't know that it's, I don't see it exploding like that straight away. Because one of the things I suppose, and, and this is where maybe, let's say, my involvement with the European Dyslexia Association certainly has opened my eyes to the huge variation in how dyslexia is, is viewed, assessed, addressed in different countries. And I suppose also because education is very, and our, even our education systems are very linked with the culture and very linked with the language in, in countries. So there's actually huge variation in that, you know? So obviously in Scotland, you don't actually, you can go right the way through school in Scotland without ever having your dyslexia formally tested but still be able to get supports and even get accommodations in your exams and different things like that. So I suppose the need, let's say, there's less need for a formal assessment in Scotland than there is in other jurisdictions. In Ireland, even, let's say, five years ago, there was a much greater need to have formal assessment than there is now. So one of the things that we would have advocated for very strongly is, and obviously we mentioned the cost of assessment previously, if public free access to assessment is limited, this means that only those who can afford it are able to get that formal diagnosis of dyslexia. And if the allocation, if you have to have a formal diagnosis in order to get supports, this means then that you get this huge skewing and a very unequal, inequitable access to supports. So I suppose it's coming back back to my social justice part, okay? Um, So one of what we've been advocating for a lot over the last years, and and we've had a lot of very positive change in that we've, our system now here in Ireland is such that you don't have to have a formal diagnosis. We still absolutely recommend, because I think it's hugely empowering for an individual to understand their profile, for their self-esteem, for their confidence, etc., you know, there's so many reasons why I think everyone should have one assessment at some stage in their life, absolutely. But at the same time, if you can't afford or you're on a waiting list and you haven't got one yet, that shouldn't be a barrier to getting support in school or to getting accommodations in your exams. So I do think that's very, very positive. But where we're at now is where we're really pushing that value of assessment. So yes, it's right that assessment shouldn't be a barrier to getting support. That's really important your support should be available to you if you need it. But at the same time, we also have to really talk about the value of assessment and the value of the word dyslexia as well. I mean, obviously, listen, there are people who want, who don't, who don't want the word to be there, who, who don't want anyone to be assessed, who don't see the value in it at all. But I think for the vast majority of people, and certainly my experience with, be it with parents, with children, with adults, is it's hugely empowering to understand, to have a name for what's going on going on for you, even as a shorthand. And, and I suppose it's also, it's often about relabeling someone rather than labeling someone. So people, you know, oftentimes you have wow. professionals with this argument of, oh, we don't want to be labeling your child. They'll be fine. They'll grow out of it. Don't be stressing. But actually, oftentimes it's so empowering to actually get rid of the negative labels they currently have which are even worse which are stupid i'm lazy 
some, it's me, I'm inherently wrong, I'm not good, everyone else is better than me. So even if, I think as much from a mental health side as anything else, I think the label or the relabel of dyslexia is hugely empowering and important for people of all ages, you know, if you have that profile. Rosie, that's a huge, huge idea, that word, relabeling. I've never heard that before, actually. Yeah. Um, and that's so, so powerful. I'm just having like a boom thing, you know, this whole relabeling with dyslexia because it's true, you know, you're distracted. You're the problem child, you know. Disappointing, careless, lazy problem. And you relabel it with different with dyslexia. And then you realize, I think differently. And it's because of dyslexia. What do I do? Mm-hmm. fascinating relabeling fantastic and it's, not, and it's not that obviously even getting the label doesn't change, doesn't no. change your challenges overnight you still have no. the same challenges with literacy but yeah. it massively reframes and relabels how you view them how others view them and i think it's about kind of just giving giving people a chance to kind you know to 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 process where they're at and just reframe and think about it a little bit differently and and Flip that switch to making things more positive in terms of strategies, in terms of supports, in terms of just being kind to yourself as well. Because sometimes our biggest critic is ourselves. It's not yeah. other people. It's our own, our yeah. own self-limitations, our own, as you say, that shame, that self-doubt, you know, these things that can be hugely, be huge barriers in, in our progress as, as human beings. So it's about giving us an opportunity to, to, I suppose, to help to bring down those walls of shame, bring down those, those doubts and actually go, you know, I have ability. I, yes, maybe I think a bit differently. Yes, maybe certain uh, things are more challenging for me, but I can do it. I can get there, you know. And now I have, I have a word that even describes what it is and it can help yeah. me to, talk to other people and find yeah. my tribe. I'm a big believer in this, you know, finding your tribe. If we lose the word dyslexia, okay, if we lose the term, how do you connect with other people who have dyslexia, yeah. you know? Or how do you how do you describe it to someone, you know? So I think we, as human beings, we, we yeah. naturally, we want to categorize. We naturally want to have a name for things. And that's not a bad thing. You know, we shouldn't be afraid of the relabeling. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I love it. So have you heard of the stick shift analogy that I use with automatic cars and manual cars? No. No? So one of the ways when my daughter got identified, uh, she had a very high IQ, very low processing speed. And so she's like, how can how can you say to me, I'm a I'm a low, slow processor and I'm still smart. I just don't understand it. You know, slow processor sounds like I'm stupid. You yeah. know, she's yeah. 20 years old, you know. Yeah. And so I went away and thought about this for like six months. How do I explain it? And eventually I said, it's kind of like two cars. One's a manual car and one's an automatic car. They're both Ferraris. Okay. Mm-hmm. They've got different gearboxes. Oh. And so 
When you say slow processing, we're not talking like a computer processor engine of the car. We're not assessing the engine of the car here. It's about the way you process information mm -hmm. is like you go up the gears manually, slow processing is because you're manual at processing, whereas someone's an automatic. And so you get into the automatic car as a class, nine out of 10, cars are automatic one out of ten's manual and the teacher says right uh, kids everyone going to drive let's put the foot on the accelerator and go in this direction now stop at this junction and then we'll take a right good and then you've put yourself into drive crunch into first gear you're driving along you stop at the junction do everything you're told and your car stalls and then you're like oh there's something wrong with my car and you do this for years and then someone comes along like a mechanic mm -hmm. gets out his clipboard and goes right we've listened to the engine it's definitely a very powerful engine you know this kind of cc it, and it's a manual gearbox and it's got three seats in the car mm -hmm. and so you've got there the three components of uh, an assessment you've got iq you got processing and you got working memory. It's like your working memory is the temporary passengers you can take in your car until you deposit in your garage or house. Yeah. Whereas other people have got like a seven-seater SUV that's automatic and you're like, yeah, what's the big deal? Pick up a park package, just drive along here, take a ride, it'll take you 10 minutes. And you're like, I don't know what's wrong with me. It took me an hour. <laughs> I had to make three trips because I couldn't carry all that stuff. I got stalled. There's something wrong with my car. I love that analogy. I might have to use that. <laughs> well, there's a video on Facebook and yeah. YouTube. I think it's been Very viewed good. like four or five hundred thousand, yeah. uh, uh, four or five hundred thousand times. Uh, but it really resonates with people to think. But the, the 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 thing that's really important in that analogy, I think, is. The big question is, what's the clutch? Because a lot of times teachers are, set, are told, okay, children need it broken down step by step. With dyslexia, you need to be more systematic. You need to have a checklist and so on, rather than just say, do this, do that, you know, and they do that. Those are the gears. Mm -hmm. They start trying to go from first to second. And for some reason, it's not working. Mm -hmm. It's because you need to learn clutch control. And so what would be the clutch control in this? And I think the clutch is our imagination. Ooh. Our imagination, everyone's imagination needs included in what they learn to some degree. But with dyslexia, we're much, we require imagination to get into gear. Mm -hmm. We need imagination to get out of gear and to move into the next gear. The transition from each step is often an imaginative transition. So you do it as a picture, a story, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, an experience or something. And we talk about multisensory learning. Often that's all connected to being able to imagine it and mm -hmm. experience it. Mm -hmm. So that's my kind of hunch that the, the imagination is very key in getting into gear and going through this manual processing. That's a, that's a really interesting way because I think you're very right about that you know as I say teachers I think they, they've gotten the message around yes breaking things into chunks and you know the step-by-step -step process sometimes it's like right well we've done that step tick and now we move to this step you know but they don't as you say they don't get why the transition from A to B isn't happening you know yeah um, but I think it's not it's not just enough to do the tick box oh we've done that step it's actually it's about 
how creatively we've done it, you know, and I suppose I'm a big believer in the principle of universal design for learning, you know, that we need to really think and analyze how we're teaching and are we teaching in a diverse way and that we're not just teaching one strategy, but we're looking at different strategies or we're getting kids to share strategies or ways that they've thought about and processed a piece of information yeah. and that there's huge learning, not just for individuals, but for the groups and even the teachers in that scenario, you know, yeah. but actually we need to look at and embrace diversity of thinking and diversity of, of teaching. And we also really need to embrace diversity in how we assess learning as well, because I think that's one of our biggest persistent barriers for kids with dyslexia is examination systems. You know, we're still very traditional in a lot of countries in terms of timed exams and things like that, you know, so we need to, that's one we need to, and maybe that is something that may come out of COVID is beginning to break that down because of the fact that, you know, timed end of year exams were not possible in most countries, in pretty much worldwide because of COVID in June, that maybe we can really look at breaking that down, you know, and making our learning more, whether it's more continuous assessment, project-based, not always pen and paper or on computer, but maybe, you know, multi-sensory ways or oral presentations, you know, that we can be more diverse in how we assess learning and how we value difference as well. Rosie, I know we, we've been talking for quite a while now and there's, there's more to ask, but I think I'm going to have to stop because I, I, I'm sure the listeners will be, some of the listeners will be going, tell us more about Europe, you know? You're, you know, the, you're the chair of the European Dyslexia Association. Um, but uh, that might be another conversation sometimes to talk about the Europe dynamics because you started yeah. touching on that. Is there anything in particular you'd like to say about the Europe dimension to, to sort of close that loop that you started? Oh, right. Okay. I suppose one of the one of the interesting things and the challenges at a European level actually is around the, the, the different languages. So obviously we know that dyslexia impacts on different languages differently because of the how regular or irregular those languages are, you know. So I think that's something that comes up time and time again is the impact of dyslexia in Italian is quite different to the impact of dyslexia in in Ireland, okay, so in Italian, they have a very, you know, straightforward, quite a regular system. So um, their difficulties tend to be more with fluency or, you know, uh, when you get to the stage of, yeah, the processing impacts, you know, uh, and things like that. Whereas in Ireland, because we have English and Irish, both of which are probably on the more complex end of, of languages uh, and more irregular. So we're dealing children in Ireland are dealing with two languages that are quite orthographically difficult in different ways. And I think, you know, the impact therefore in Ireland, it can hit more quickly early in school because kids hit barriers with decoding reading at a much earlier stage than let's say you would initially. So I think those language differences are a huge part of it. And also then, as I, as I say, I mentioned earlier, those cultural differences in in our education systems and in, and in what's expected. And I think also what's, what amazes me at a European level is also just even from a, again, I'm going full circle with my whole social justice issue. If you look, for example, at countries like, you know, maybe some of the Scandinavian countries, which have a more kind of, I suppose, social model, you know, the idea of a parent having to bring their child for a private assessment is almost unheard of. You know, the state is expected to do these things. 
Whereas in some other countries, we have more, you know, it's very much left up to individuals and there's much more and therefore this, I think, drives more inequity. We also have countries where there's still much more of a medical diagnostic model of dyslexia as opposed to more of a social model where we're looking at, I suppose, really that sense of where the system needs to adjust itself. So it's not that, so we're taking the, the difficulty is not based in the individual. The, the difficulty is caused by the system, the environment not being inclusive to the needs of the person with dyslexia. So again, I think- So in effect- the, the Variation in where countries are at in terms of that, you know? Yes, so it's like, are you disabled or is the system disabled? You. you know, there's a, there's a disability there, but the system has a disability to help you learn. Yeah in the way you need yeah exactly so your challenges are as much because of so your challenges as a dyslexic are as much because of the way the school system is set up and the way the exams are run and organized as it is by you inherently you know or yeah. it's, it's about how you've been taught or how your learning is assessed um or how your workplace works even you yeah. know yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. fantastic rosie what, what fantastic uh, discussion, really enjoyed that. So many valuable things in it. Uh, the the relabeling, the online, uh, we got a little bit sidetracked. I know there's lots more that the Dyslexia Association of Ireland does, but it's fascinating to have gone in deep about those online assessments. Mm -hmm. I think that's a key thing mm -hmm. that other dyslexia associations and other professionals around the world, um, I'd love to see a lot more of that. Mm -hmm. I think um, one of the things that's really important, and I suppose it's a little bit of a mantra with us, is, you know, it's that sense of, you know, not aiming for perfection all of the time. And I know in some jurisdictions, I think there was a lot of fear about doing online assessments because, oh, it won't be maybe exactly the same as if we were in a room. But I think you always have to put the child or the, the adult, the individual at the center of it. And look, what's in their interests? Is it in their interests to do an assessment that's almost as you know almost practically as good as you would be in person or is it in their interest to say oh you're going to have to wait till we're post-covid in god only knows potentially years time before we can assess and identify your dyslexia so i think that sense of if you push the individual and their needs um uh, the kind of that sort of paramountcy principle that the needs of the individual are paramount then let's not get then suddenly we can dissolve some of these structural barriers you know to doing things for people thank you very much rosie thanks for being here no problem thank you it's lovely to chat and listeners we've just done we've got a new dyslexia quiz on the app store if you've got an ios device or an ipad and um, you can go do it for free it's the most popular most highly rated dyslexia test on the app store it gives you an impact score at the end of it. It's not an assessment, it's a screener. Uh, it just, it helps you understand how dyslexia affects more than just reading, the wider impacts of dyslexia potentially in your world. And there's some unexpected questions in there that you might be going, does dyslexia mean that I carry more stuff in my bag than I would normally? Because that's one of the interesting tips. If you've got a kid, I, I learned that from uh, Moira, 
with the MBE, who is uh, one of our podcast guests from Dyslexia Scotland, she said one of the quickest ways to identify the, the child with dyslexia in the classroom is to look at their bags. Normally the kids with the biggest bags are the ones with the highest chance of having dyslexia. Those two or three kids with these massive bags where they can't remember what they need, so they just take everything. There's there's there are gym kits there all week. Everything's in there all the time. Anyway, so go to dyslexiaquiz.com or the app store and download that and enjoy it. So thanks very much for listening. Goodbye. This podcast is sponsored by dyslexiaproductivitycoaching.com. It's my day job when I'm not hosting this podcast. Tell me, do you know what you want to achieve in the workplace, but you're struggling with how to achieve it? Maybe you suspect some traits of dyslexia are getting in the way. Well, that's where dyslexia productivity coaching comes in, because we give you a simple productivity system for your Apple devices that harnesses the creativity that comes with your dyslexia. It includes proven methods like note-taking, reminders, speech-to-text, mind mapping, and more, all tailored to your needs. It'll free up your time and help you achieve outstanding results. Book a complimentary call to discuss it with me, and if you do it soon, I may also be available to coach you personally via Zoom. So don't be shy. Go to dyslexiaproductivitycoaching.com or swipe up and book it now.